All right, well, God bless you, uh, and welcome to Daniel chapter 8 tonight. Um, as usual, just a blessing to be here. Let's uh, open in prayer before we start. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. I would just praise you for the God that you are, the, the God that you have revealed yourself to be in Scripture. Amazing God, a wonderful God, a good and just all the attributes, Lord, that you have revealed to us about who you are, we are just in awe of who you are, Lord. Um, just uh, pray for your spirit tonight to be here to guide us, uh, empower us to understand your word. It's You have written it, you have uh, inspired it, and you want us to know it. So please help us, Lord, help me as we go through it to hear from you uh, in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so we've made it to chapter 8 tonight, um, this great book of both history and prophecy. I tried, uh, as I'm going through, it's always a challenge to know how much to leave in and, and how much to try and uh, incorporate and how, what to leave out in a, in a one-hour time frame. So um, we'll just pray that God will use those things, but I've, I've uh, intentionally tried to include uh, a lot of dating, especially in uh, today's chapter, because uh, unlike some other uh, cults and, and false religions, uh, Christianity, the scriptures tie together with reality and real history. And so we can look back, we can know uh, what's gone on and how it relates to what God has said in his word to know that this is truth. And so he, he relates it in, in actual dates of time that, that history tracks with. And so I've incorporated some of those to just, I guess, uh, help us have more confidence to, to know that these things that, especially here in Daniel, God has talked about are true and they're just right on target. So it's an awesome book, great book. And I, uh, so I've always loved uh, prophecy, and I'm sure I've told that before. I've uh, been a believer, Christian, uh, looking at the Word, trying to study for a little over 40 years now. I'm old, and so I've had time to, to look at it. Uh, and I've always loved prophecy. God, I just put that in my heart from the very start. I've, I've said that before. Started out with, uh, in the first month that I was saved, listening to the the 12 cassette series from Jack Van Ippy. Well, it might have been more than 12 cassettes of the Revelation. And he, he was an amazing guy, great uh, memory and a great teacher. And so that's how I started. And so, and that was back, you know, in the 80s and in the vernacular of that day, maybe it blew my mind to be unsaved, to get saved and have God speaking to me through his word about all the really about the unseen world, about this spiritual world that existed and does exist and will be a part of in the future, it was amazing to to go from uh, unsaved, un, no knowledge to this amazing truth. And so as a result of that, I've always, uh, when I've looked at Old Testament prophecy too, I've always wanted to put things into the end times, which is not always the greatest idea. We, we want to look at the text. We want to understand it, interpret it according to the whole LGBHC uh, hermeneutic that we've talked about, grammatical, historical, in the context. So tonight, uh, I've always had some trouble with Daniel 8 and 11 trying to place some of the events. 
And so more than some of the others. And so I have to say thanks to God. I've had kind of a breakthrough just in study and uh, in praying and studying through what the text has to understand it better because it does have some time frame issues a little bit hard to interpret or to understand in there that I think I've gotten a more fuller understanding of. And so I'll try and and, uh, share those with you tonight. And you can look at them in terms of what the text says to you and see what you think. But uh, so tonight, not as much in chapter eight, looking at end time prophecy as God fulfilling prophecy in history, just uh, in detail, perfect detail of foretelling the future you know, several hundred years in advance. I mean, that's, that's still miraculous. God, nobody can know what's going to happen you know, a month from now, let alone 400 years in the future. So that's what we'll see here is chapter 8. Most of the text of that is talking about fulfilled prophecy maybe 400 years in advance as it comes into perfect detail. So that, that's an amazing thing. It's an awesome thing that... Um, I have found for myself this week, like, wow. I mean, it didn't diminish it at all. It was like amazing, more than than before, because I saw it for what it was talking about. It gives us prophet or solid confidence in other prophetic texts that they are going to be literally fulfilled. And we can talk about all kinds of other things: Jesus' birth, death, uh, resurrection, Israel regathering. The tribulation, great tribulation, rapture. I mean, we can go on and on. Really, so much of Scripture is and was prophetic. I mean, it's it's God talking about Himself, but a lot of it is telling what's going to happen with our human race all through His prophetic program, all the way through from start to finish. So we get it at the very beginning in Genesis. He ends it in the Revelation, and He tells us what's going to happen in between. So he's an awesome God, and this text is is awesome tonight. So let's go ahead and look at verse 1. We'll get started. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So he's he's placing it, he's timing it. So it's he had the vision before in chapter seven. This is comes after that third year, of the reign of Belshazzar. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Just I say a word about the the veracity of Daniel. He continues to name himself very specifically all the way through to, I think, the Holy Spirit just guarding against the critics who want to come and say, ah, that book is a sham, it's a hoax, it's not true, it's not part of Scripture. No. God, through His Word, says Daniel wrote the book. And Daniel says it himself, he puts it in the text, so it's either true or all of a lie. And so uh, we believe wholeheartedly this is God's Word of truth to us. Again, when we'll get to there's our outline. Um, just a quick look at how I kind of divided it up, trying to understand it myself, look through it, study it. This is a look at tonight. So we're in chapter 8. Uh, this is Daniel's second vision, uh, written in the third year of Belshazzar, which was 551 B.C. I mean, and there's a lot of study that's gone into that, where exactly that fit into the timeline. And it's pretty well proven that that year is the year that uh, Daniel had this vision. 
in the third year of Belshazzar, 551 B.C. And again, here, here's just another little look at this chronological order of visions, just to try and place it. Again, don't look at that purple bar. We've kind of already determined that that that's, doesn't represent very well the time frame of his governmental position is in between all the kings there, but the rest of it is, is good. So we're looking at the second vision there, chapter 8, and the, kind of a little bit further into Belshazzar's reign there. So it shows uh, in actual time, this is given about 12 years before uh, the destruction of Babylon, before Belshazzar is slain on that party night. So about 12 years before the, the change there. <clears throat> so it talks about his, his vision being in Susa, the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. This was, uh, Susa is also the place where Esther lived when she was queen uh, under Ahasuerus. That's uh, Esther 1 and 2, one, one and, uh, two there. It says it took place in the days of Ahasuerus uh, that the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which is at the citadel in Susa. So that's that places it. That uh, um, This map shows, and I, I left that in there to try and get a little bit of relationship between where those two are. As you look at the Persian Gulf there, on the bottom right-hand corner of there, and then go to there, it's a ways. I think it was, uh, I don't know if I made a note of how far. I think it was about 200 miles. Uh, and so this, as we go forward then, Daniel 8.3 says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. This... Uh, as we think about the vision here, then we're looking at um, a vision that Daniel had that portrays reality. Again, it's been kind of challenging in these chapters because the vision is given, so it kind of goes through that whole thing, but then the detail is given later. So it's, should you, you know, look at all the implications of the vision first and then uh, come down and double up on that? Or, but well, I'll try and... Uh, just hit a little bit of highlight on it, and then we'll look at more details. We get down further in the chapter, but this is exactly fits how things progressed uh, as Alexander the Great. Oh, excuse me. Let's see, where did we end up? No, first of all, verse three says, uh, "Now the two horns were long, one longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last." And so, this to begin with is the perfect picture of Media Persia as the Medes defeated Babylon in conjunction with Persia, but the stronger rule of Cyrus, king of Persia, comes up later. So they were a combination working together, Media and Persia. The critics would like to divide that up and say, well, no, Daniel had it wrong. He tried to say that it was Media, then Persia, then Greece, and, and not include Rome in his progression there. But this again shows that that's not true. Daniel read it as a combined country, Media first, but Cyrus and Persia did come up stronger and were actually the ruling part of that combination later, with Cyrus being the king. So again, God's word is accurate. It's uh, how it was told. It says the two horns were long and the one longer coming up last. And that shows Cyrus coming up being the stronger king last, just like the vision. 
And verse 4 says, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Cyrus extended the kingdom in just that way, uh, pushing west, north, and south, but not to the east. And so that's how it looks from there. That was the, the kingdom of Persia where it extended to, where it went to, and so it did push from Turkey, Egypt, and then over uh, to the east, that direction, and north. So again, a perfect picture of you know, what happened in history versus what God predicted maybe 400 years in advance. So that's how we see it. There's also Susa, where that was uh, in that mix in the map there too, where, where the vision was. I guess just a word too, and we'll see the kind of the proof of it later, but some, some commentators would say, well, was, was Daniel actually transported to Susa and did he have this vision while he was there? And most likely not. It was a vision. He was in Babylon and he had the vision of Susa given to him by God to see what was going on there. <clears throat> Verse 5 says, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So we look at a, a chapter like this, and we look at a few verses placed one after the other that encompasses a whole huge uh, event uh, chain that has happened in the world. And I... I laid in bed thinking about this during the week too and, and studying earlier that we, we passed through these so quickly, but these are momentous, world-changing events that have happened in the world. God has predicted them in advance. So many people were moved, killed, uh, lives turned upside down, changed, rulers of the known world at that time changing and moving, God predicting and God working this plan out himself with the power that he has to change hearts, to change circumstances, to make things happen in just the way that he wants it to be. Now, I, there's an a distinction there that God doesn't just sit back and watch and then at the end of things go, whoa, that's how it went. So, okay, here's how it was. Da, 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 da. And now I'm just reporting it. No, God is in charge of the world events. He makes things happen according to how his plan is. But what he wants, he does. And that's what's accomplished. And that's what's happening here. And so again, we see it fit exactly that uh, the progression of Alexander the Great uh, conquered with lightning speed from the West. And so he, <clears throat> and again, a vision. We see uh, what happened in Daniel's mind. He sees, he sees a, a vision of these animals and what's happening with them. But in reality, that is exactly what happened. Alexander came from the West kind of at lightning speed. Uh, just a military genius, really, as it turns out, in the way that he fought and the way that he did battle. He accomplished more in such a short period of time that no other conqueror had ever done. And so that's what God says about him, that he came with lightning speed so fast that his feet didn't even touch the ground. I mean, that's a picture. You think about it, just... A freight train. I'm, I guess cartoons pop in my head for some reason, but uh, you know, you've seen that. That's how they portray it. It's like he, he's, his feet are going so fast that he's just <laughs> flying. And that's what God's picture was about Alexander the Great conquering. And he did. He, he introduced some new tactics in battle 
The phalanx was one of them where he would just push through and then get from the front and the back to where he defeated armies that, that were never defeated before. And so that's, as we just continue down, as we get a quick overview here, we, he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, that's verse 6, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. So that would be Alexander coming in. I saw him come beside the ram, which was Cyrus in his kingdom, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram, shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So that's the two horns that later was bigger, but Media and Persia together were shattered by Alexander. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And again, it's a match to history. Uh, Alexander ultimately defeated the Persian Empire in the Battle of Gagamela near Nineveh on October 1st, 331 BC. It's well documented final battle that finally took over uh, Persia and the Persian Empire, and they were defeated by Alexander. So this is his kingdom. This is where he got to in all of his conquering, a pretty large area. Um, and I, I don't know if it's here or later, but it comes to mind that uh, when we talk about the world, when God talks about the world, a lot of the times in prophecy, he's talking about the known world that has to do with Israel at the center. Everything for God is centered in Israel and in Jerusalem. That's the center of his earth to him. That's how he presents it. That's his people. Um, I don't think I can stress enough how Jewish God's look at the world is. I mean, as you look at Scripture, and as you look even at the church, and as we look at the Old Testament, it's all of the Jews. Jesus physically was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. Jesus himself said in John 4.22, I believe it is, yep, 4.22, that salvation is from the Jews. That was Jesus' words. So those are his people. His, his operations on earth center in that. He grafts the church in. We come in Christ to God's plan that was started with the Jews, and it will finish with them as well. And so when we say that Alexander conquered the known world, that's, that's where it is. He didn't go into China. He wasn't all the way into India. But the, that the world that we're talking about encompasses all this area centered around Israel and around Jerusalem. So then verse 8 says, The male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. <clears throat> Again, critics just hate this idea that, that the prophecy is just so precise of, of what actually happened in this. And so they have to say, well, no, this was history written later and then just pretended to be prophecy, but it's not. This letter, this, this book comes 400 years earlier. It comes at, at 539 B.C. And these things happen much, much later. The young Alexander of Macedon, and again, you can look online and find some really interesting and detailed accounts. And it's, it's really worth, if you're interested in the history of these things at all, 
to do some hunting through there and you can see videos and, and things, just short ones about the actual history of events that happened during this time is very enlightening in terms of how it relates to scripture and how, how things worked out exactly as God said. But so when it says the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, that was Alexander. He was a, he started, he came to power at age 25. So if, I don't know who you know, and I'm trying to think of who some of my close friends or, or associates, uh, uh, people that I know are 25. That's not very old for a world conqueror. That's a pretty young man, but that's who, that's how old he was when he came to power. Kind of got forced into that. His, his father was away doing some other battles. They got attacked at home in Macedonia. And so he, he was kind of forced into it, but sure enough, he turned out to be a military genius and started his conquering then at 25 years old. The speed that he conquered the well-known or the the known world was just astounding. Everything you read about it in history will say that. Sadly, even though he was a conqueror of the world, he was unable to conquer himself. And the one commentator, and there's there's lots of, of documentation on this too, but it says one commentator said that at a drunken party, he drank what was called the Herculean cup of alcohol. So it was like, hey, I got this. And so instead of just drinking this huge alcohol cup once, he drank it twice. And within a few days, he had a raging fever and died of alcohol poisoning. So there, there is this you know, brilliant military genius conquered the whole known world. And another account I'd heard said he had sat down at the end of that and cried because he couldn't find anything else to conquer. You know, that's, that's shallow in terms of spiritual life and truth that we know about, but there he was. And, and what, a, what a, a sad and a disgraceful ending to, to a man like that. He died when he was 33 years old. Um, he lost his great kingdom, and then it was split up between four of his generals, just like the scriptures say. And we'll, we'll look at them a little bit uh, more later. Verse 9 says, Out of them came forth a, regular, or a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground, perform its will, and prosper. <clears throat> and here's, uh, here's where some of the trouble comes in when you try and interpret. And the, the, the person that it's talking about here is Antiochus Epiphanes, or Epiphanes, as one, one commentator called his last name there, however you'd want to say it, this is the man we're talking about. This, this ruler, this, this evil uh, hater of the Jews, was then the one that the scriptures talk about that said, uh, one of them came forth, from one of them came a rather small horn. So it's talking, it says one of them, it's talking about these four kings that came after Alexander in his four uh, kingdoms. And so he comes up hating the Jews, uh, hoping to turn them into loyal Greeks. 
that this is the part where you'd look at it and want to apply this to the future, want to say, oh, that's end time stuff right there, because it sounds exactly like someone else that we think about immediately, which would be the Antichrist that comes in the very end. So, and, and again, I kind of have the weakness myself that says I'm really quick to apply the scripture to end time prophecy. Uh, and I'll probably have a hard time getting rid of that. I mean, that's, a, that's in me, but I want to study and listen to what God has to say more than what my desire or my bent would be to, to search out. But these verses are God's prediction of what was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, who is almost a perfect picture of the Antichrist yet to come. And I, that's part of the problem, because in this man, in this Antiochus person, you have almost a perfect picture of the Antichrist that will be coming at the end of the Great Tribulation. We'll, we'll keep going because there'll, be there'll be some more detail here. And then I heard a holy one speaking. Verse 13 says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And again, this is a tricky part here because that, this is the one that's always thrown me uh, off because it's like, where does that fit? 2,300 evenings and mornings. It's a, you know, we're all used to, at least <clears throat> if you're dispensational and you're, you think about the great tribulation and you know that God has planned things for the end of this age, He's going to have this uh, 70th week of Daniel planned ahead. Things are going to happen in there. There's a lot of talk about 1,260 days, time, times and half a time, three and a half years. So we're all zoned in on these actual times that are coming in the future for this tribulation period uh, or a seven-year time, a week of years. And so this 2,300 just doesn't, <clears throat> it does not fit into any part of that. It's like, well okay, this is end time, so how does this work? But really, I think as I, the more I studied and listened to good, solid men teaching about and looking at the possibilities for interpretation that it would be fulfilled in this time frame of Antiochus and what he brought into the picture and his defeat and the restoration of that temple during that time... And I think as we look, and you just look back at the, the previous verses 9 through 12, uh, we look at those things and think, well, that has to be in the end. But there's other, and I'm, I'm not going to go clear into detail on some of these, but there's good information there, uh, commentary, that talks about how some of these terms that are used, uh, like verse 10 says, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Well, you're, you try and think immediately like, oh, that's got to be fallen angels, it's Satan, he drug them down, but it really isn't necessarily that. And um, God's people, the Jews, have been called those terms, the host of heaven, as they've been called stars in the Old Testament. And so I believe that it's right to look at this as that time that Antiochus came, he trampled the Jews down, he did destroy their temple again. He, he's crashed their truth to the ground. And that that is a better interpretation that actually takes into account what that 2300 evenings and mornings could be. 
there's a couple of options there that uh, commentators have looked at to how, as to how to interpret that, whether it's 23, this 2300 evenings and mornings is either 2300 actual days or whether you would count the evenings and mornings separately, so there's 2300 of them, you could call that half of that or 1150 full days if you talked about evenings and mornings uh, taking one of those each to make up a day. And so 2,300 of those cut in half to make a day makes 1,150. Because there are, there are events in that time frame that can fit either one of those, but better, the 1,150 days, either one of those, though, has to end when Judas Maccabeus restores the temple, cleanses it, and brings it back into function again on December 14th, 164 BC. So that, that's a solid date there. And either one of those other time frames, either the 2300 or 1150, have events that could work and the prophecy could be fulfilled correctly in either one of those. But, but better in the 1150. And I, I didn't uh, want to take the time to try and go into the whole detail of that tonight as we have more to go here. But be glad to look at that with you in more detail to show how those really fit and how I think it's really a better understanding of this chapter to make sense in the overall picture of things, to look at it that way that this is Antiochus and the things that he did. So we'll keep on here. And verse 15 says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man, Daniel, an understanding of the vision. So the voice identifies the angel Gabriel. This is the first time that he's named in Scripture, that, there's, that God knows his angels. It says he's given them all names. And he knows every one of them personally. There's, there is no given specified number of how many there are. Millions probably, maybe, who knows, billions. But God knows every one of them by name. And this one is one of the head angels, one of the top angels, Gabriel. His, his name means man of God. Uh, it's the first of occurrence of a named angel. Like I said, hundreds of years later, he would come to announce the birth of the Redeemer, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. So he's had a job. This is one of his first ones by name to come and talk to Daniel and give him an understanding. In this particular place, if we apply grammatical and historical hermeneutic, we could say that, yes, the vision pertains to the time of the end without necessarily being the actual events of that time. And so I, I don't think it's, it's uh, parsing to try and make it say something it isn't, doesn't say, but that to take it for what it just says and only that. And so what happened to Antiochus, what happened in the Jewish history here in this time does pertain to the end because it's going to show us almost a perfect picture of what's coming in the future from an actual man, an actual person who did some of the same kind of thing that will happen yet in the future. So it gives us this real-life picture in detail of what this evil, horrible, brutal, murdering person, the Antichrist, will be. Because that's what Antiochus was. 
So in verse 18, it says, Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. So Daniel would like to know the answer to these things. He's asked for help. He wants to understand what's going on, but in the presence of Gabriel, he, st- he couldn't stand up. He was, he was definitely wanting what Gabriel had to offer, but the presence of this angel, this mighty angel, was more than he could take. First he was scared, terrified, and then unconscious. So even though the Bible says that at some point in the future in our glorified state that some of us may judge angels, that's not yet. I mean, if we, any of us, would come into the presence of an angel today as, as, da- as Daniel did, I believe that would be our reaction as well. The glory and the power that's exhibited out of these beings is just more than what our human uh, nature can handle. And it happens every time that there's an encounter with a human being and an angel. So, I mean, it's not a passing opinion of what it might be. This shows the, the difference between us right now in our fallen state and these glorious angels as they exist and come and help to do whatever they do. And I think, I think you mentioned this morning about uh, one angel killing 185,000 to accomplish God's purposes in one night. One angel. Phew! 185,000. So they are glorious and powerful, and that, and that was the reaction Daniel had here. He, he fell to the ground in, in a deep sleep, and it took the angel to touch him to bring him back to consciousness so he could hear what he needed to hear. And so it did cause him to stand upright. Verse 19 says, He said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And again, I think this is a, he will see a picture in Itiochus about what will happen in the times of the end. It will be this, the same, only worse. But it will be a look at that. So I believe that final period of indignation does refer to the last time, the end time, the great tribulation of that last time of perse- uh, persecution and destruction of the Jews. And sadly, that is still yet in the future to come. We've seen a little taste of what that kind of evil does uh, in the, over in, in Jerusalem, in Israel. It's a satanic, demonic hate that is exhibited uh, apart from reason or apart from any uh, purpose at all that could be named except just hate and murder of the worst kind. And that's where it comes from. And so it pertains at the time of the end, there will be that time that comes And we see it uh, named in the Old Testament. It's described as the time of Jacob's trouble and the day of the Lord when God pours out his wrath on a a wicked and rebellious world. That's that's in the future for unbelievers today. That's why in our heart, when when we look at prophecy, we don't do it just to know things. We want it to change our hearts and to put a compassion in our hearts for the people around us that we know that are without Christ. If you're listening to this right now and you do not know him, this is in the future, if it comes that soon, that the world will be uh, experiencing the wrath of God in a seven-year period that's worse uh, than anything that's ever been before or ever will be after. That's Jesus talking in Matthew 24. 
that's coming along the way in the future. Jeremiah 30 and Joel 1 talk about it. It says, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it's the time of Jacob's, discre- uh, Jacob's distress. And I think that's uh, very descriptive of the fact that God is going to come back and turn and work with Israel again. That trouble that's coming in the future is Jacob's trouble. It's because God needs to come back and convince them that Jesus Christ truly is that Messiah that they've been looking for all along and haven't seemed to be able to find that it's Jesus. So the time coming in the future is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So it does talk about a day when the Jews, unbelieving Jews, will be saved. Romans tells us that all Israel will be saved in Romans chapter 11, all that survive. It does say that this time of trouble will take out two-thirds of the Jews that are alive in that day, and one-third the remnant will be saved. All of them will be saved. And he'll be... He'll take off their bonds. He'll take away their slavery. He'll give what He has given to us if we know Christ right now. Freedom, forgiveness of sin, washing away of all of our sin. And that is monumental. That's a miracle in my life, as I believe it is in yours, that that sin, debt that we have, that just weighs us down, that that backpack that Christian was carrying along uh, in Pilgrim's Progress that was weighing him down, The bonds are released. The weight falls off. Forgiveness of sin is there. And that's what we have if we know Christ. It's what you can know if you don't know Christ right now. You can be free from the guilt and the weight that you carry around because of whatever it is that you've done. I know the things I've done and the weight that that would be. God can release that in Jesus Christ for all time, cleansed of everyone. And that's what he's going to do for these Jews in the future who turn to him. Joel 1.15 says, Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So you don't want to be in the position of God's wrath and judgment because that's what it will be. You want to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ just as they will want to be in that day. And so at this point, the Holy Spirit gets very specific about who represents what in this prophecy as we go forward. It's the part that the critics hate because they have to acknowledge that God's word is true, that the power, omniscience of Almighty God or deny the truth of Scripture altogether. They have to see it. They have to acknowledge that God knows the future because He is God. He tells the truth. He is over all, or they just have to deny Him altogether. They can't. There's no way to get in between there. Verse 20 says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So yeah, we're getting specific here now. So that's uh, Darius and Cyrus. And again, it it tells us the truth that, that Daniel understood this to be a combined kingdom. The kings of Media and Persia together. Verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. I don't know how you could get much more specific about what went on in the actual world with these kings and with, with um, 
Media Persia, and then with Alexander the Great in the Greek Empire, it's just in detail exactly what happened three or four hundred years in advance. And then, verse 22, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Again, just a perfect example of God's telling the truth in advance. So I think at least this section is one of the easiest to interpret. Thankfully, there is one in here that's, that's pretty easy. You just look at what it says, and you either believe it or not. It shuts up the critic who said Daniel was a hoax, that he was forged by another, and he got it wrong by separating Media and Persia as two kingdoms. Uh, he didn't separate them. It's obvious. He got it right, perfectly aligning with history. Uh, as they won and then the other conquered much of the known world. So if we think back on the dream, we think of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in verse uh, in chapter 2, and then Daniel's vision in 7, and now here in 8. These all agree with history. All of these things tell the picture that God knows what's happening in advance. He causes it, He directs it, and He tells us. He tells us what it is so that we can know, so that we can have confidence and trust and faith in him right down to the last detail. The first king of the Grecian Empire obviously was Alexander of Macedon, one of his titles, precisely predicted by God through Daniel. Uh, His empire at its height, Alexander's, covered 1.5 million square miles. And that's, as we look back here, that's about the area that that whole kingdom of his covered. That's big. And then ironically, he died at 33 years old in 323 B.C. So pinpointed again with history, who he was and the years that he lived and died. A wretched death of overindulgence and debauchery, not in battle. And then his kingdom, because he died unexpectedly, you'd say, uh, we hear a lot of that today, died unexpectedly. Well, not to God. God knows the days of our sojournings here on earth right down to the minute of when our last breath will be. He knows when it is. We don't. Anyone that thinks that they have it down and that they've got many years to live better think again. Only God knows that. None of us know whether we have an hour, a day, a month, a year, five years to live. None of us know that. Our our task, our, uh, our job is to be ready at any moment to see him, to meet him, to be there and be with him. It says anyone that has this hope in him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. So we want to live in a way that makes us ready to be in Jesus' presence at a moment's notice. I need to remember that. I need to remember it every moment of the day when I'm tempted to go off here or there in some way that I shouldn't be or where I shouldn't be or an attitude that I shouldn't have. It's not earning anything, but it's like, do I want to see Jesus this minute? Depending on what I'm doing, I want to be able to say, yeah, I'm ready to see him right now, whenever that is. And that's me. I'm talking to myself here. I I want that. I want to be ready for that. So Alexander wasn't. He died 33 years old. And again, in this precise way, it went to his four generals. They were, and here's a word I had not heard before, but they're called the diadochi. 
That's the four uh, generals that, and they call it, they made a title of it actually. Historically, if you'd look for that, it'd pop up and I'd show you, oh, this is the Didache is the four generals that came after Alexander. So it's a title there. It was Cassander, uh, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, or Seleucus. Uh, and each of them had an area, but their power wasn't like Alexander's. Obviously, if you have one strong, leading, conqueror, king, and then you divide it into four suddenly without any plans, it's going to be weaker, and that's what it was. And eventually it just fell apart, just as God prophesied it would. And so he continues to prove true what he says. But out of one of those kingdoms, uh, the Seleucid kingdom, came Antiochus Epiphanes, and this is of Syria. So out of the Seleucid kingdom, I think I have that here. Oh, yeah. So as we see, it almost encompasses the whole part of Alexander's kingdom there. So the Seleucid dynasty took over the biggest part of what those four actually took over. The other three got smaller pieces. Antiochus ended up as the ruler of this kingdom right here, and he thought he was pretty big. Pretty big shot himself there. Uh, and he turned out to be one of the most ruthless, wicked kings that there ever was. So as you look at uh, verses 23 and following there, we'll see uh, it says, in the latter period of their rule, that's these four generals, the four kingdoms that we talked about in just the very verse before. So it's in the latter kingdom of their rule. When the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. So this is Antiochus. He comes out of one of those kingdoms, out of Syria, out of the Seleucid Empire. His power will be mighty. Let's see. Uh, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power, obviously. And he will destroy. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree, and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Again, you're tempted to look at this and think that has to be end time. That's talking about this, this person. And we've seen some of the other text in the Revelation and other places in the New Testament and even Old Testament prophets that would seem to say this has to be this last Antichrist. But this describes Antiochus to a T. And it doesn't, it's not uh, absolutely necessary that these would refer to the Antichrist because Antiochus did all of these things. He destroyed mighty men. He destroyed the holy people. He, when he came to... All right, well, here, here it is. And that's a, that's a comparison there. But Antiochus rose to power out of Syria, ruling over the largest part, largest part of this diadochi of the four. He hated the Jews, sought to bring them in line with obedience to him alone. Same, same personality, same desire. He wanted to be the top guy, top dog in the world. And later even worship of him as a god. The coins that he made, they continually got more and more portraying him as god. 
And this very name that he took on this Epiphanes, if you think about it, the word to us describes a vision of God. Or we, we had an epiphany. It was like a, a divine uh, realization that came into our mind. So, and that's what he thinks he is. He thinks he is the epiphany of God. He is so awesome. That's who he thought he was. In 168 BC, he sent 20,000 soldiers to level Jerusalem. He, uh, he sent them in. They murdered most of the men and took the women and children as slaves. This is in Jerusalem. He did it on a Sabbath, but that wasn't enough for him. On December 14th, 168 BC, he entered the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar. It's also said that he poured pig broth over the utensils and over the cups, saucers of the temple. He just wanted to blaspheme this God of the, of the Jews. He hated them. He had no regard whatsoever for this so-called God of theirs. He did the, the worst he could possibly do to try and blaspheme this God that they, that they revered that he had no regard for. Anyone found with a copy of the Law of Moses was executed, murdered. So that's, that was the condition in Jerusalem, in Israel, in that day. 168 B.C. But thankfully the temple was regained, cleansed, and restored by the courageous efforts of Judas Maccabeus. And there's, that's not in Scripture, but there's historical documentation of this, this courageous Jew. And some of the ones that survived the killing in Jerusalem, he didn't get all the men. They went to Judas Maccabeus. They saw the destruction that was ravaged on their families, on their people. They joined, and then courageously they went and took it back on December 14th, 165 B.C. That event is celebrated today by the Jews as the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. So that's that date of restoration of the temple that Judas Maccabeus did in history is remembered until now. It's still remembered every year for what he did and came back against this Antiochus, this wicked, horrible, murdering king and what he did, and they took it back. Just as a comparison, though, here, and again, Warren Wiersbe is one of my great sources in study here. He's got a great way of, of portraying these things, but his, these, this was his comparison of the two, and so you can kind of get this idea of how you can get those two maybe confused in the application of the prophetic part of what's going on in Daniel here, and I, th I do believe that this is the best way to understand Daniel chapter 8. But it says, both begin modestly, but increase in power and influence. Both blaspheme God with mouths uh, that speak great things. Both persecute the Jewish people. Both claim to be gods and put images in the temple. Both impose their own religion on the people. Are opposed by a believing remnant, energized by the devil. Uh, appear to succeed and, then, and seem to be invincible at the time but both are finally defeated by the coming of a Redeemer, first Judas Maccabeus and then the Lord Jesus Christ in our future. So I believe Ant Antiochus is a lesser picture of this ruler that's going to come over the entire world that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 at that time of the Great Tribulation. So prophecy in the Bible is not to scare us. I mean, it, sometimes you talk about it and you, if you bring that up and say and talk about the future and how horrible it's going to be, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, yikes. You know, that's, but that's not the point. The point is he wants to prepare us to be what we need to be today. 
we need to be courageous. We need to be uh, energized by God. We need to be joyful in knowing what we have in Christ, the future we have in Him that supersedes everything in the world. Unbelievers have this mess that's going on here, and that's all they have. They have nothing else to look forward to. They have no hope. And that's the, the, the rapture for the church is our blessed hope it says, comfort one another with these words that Jesus promised to come back and get us. That's what he tells us to look forward to, to look to those things that are eternal and not temporal. This is not our home. This is not where we put everything into. It's, it's how we travel through here to do God's will and to reach out to the people around us with the truth that we have, the joy, the hope, that real hope that, that transcends this. That's what we have in Christ. Last verse, uh, verse 27 says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. So obviously spiritual events in our life can be draining, terribly so to Daniel with all the the, the visions and with the encounter he had with angel encounter and all these things, it took it out of him. He was sick in bed for days as a result of this encounter with God's angels and with his truth. It also proves the fact that he was not in, uh, in Susa, but he was in Babylon because he got up the next day or after a couple days of being sick, he got up and worked with the king and did his business again. So another, just a proof in the text of the scripture that he was there and he was not actually in Susa. Also shows that God's inspiration through men does not always have to be totally understood by them. Daniel didn't, even at the, at the time he was there. He, he told it all to us. He, it's recorded for us for centuries here now to, to understand, but he didn't totally understand it. It's scriptural, and it says in 1 Peter 1.10 and Romans 15.4 that this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful search and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and he's talking to the church, he's talking to the ones that he wrote the letter to, Peter, in which these things which now have been announced to you through whose, those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So these, these prophecies and these Old Testament writings are for us. Daniel didn't necessarily understand all of those, but in the end it says these are for us in the end times they are going to be revealed to us more and more so we can understand. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So again, God tells us these things so we can know the truth, we can be solid in what He says to us, and that we can have hope. And that hope is what we can share with the people around us who need it. So He prepares us for service, and to give us hope. God knows it all from start to finish. He keeps his promises. And I just want to finish with my favorite promise that Jesus made through the Apostle John. This is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. 
I love it. I love that verse. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word to us, that Your truth is glorious. You are amazing, and we are just in awe over You, God. We thank You for Your mercy and grace that shared the Scriptures with us. Teach us what we need to know about You and about the future. Please empower us, Lord, to um, love You, to love the ones around us, to seek their best by telling them the truth about You and about me and about ourselves, that I am nothing. I am not earning anything. But Lord, you have given me everything by your grace, and you will give it to whoever comes to you. So God, please help us to joyously share that truth, open people's hearts so they can hear, and uh, we just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. 